Good morning. It's good to be back with you all. It's been a little while. Uh, like basically everyone within 10 feet of me got COVID for one month and then uh, we went to South Carolina, had a good trip there. We are going to be with you uh, two weeks ago and it was one of those, just this kind of thing seems to happen to us where you load up everybody in the car. It's been a miracle that you got all the kids clothes on and everything and then the car won't start, you know. <sighs> uh, so anyway, it's good to be back with you and I will admit, I was a little nervous before uh, starting the car this morning that I'd have a repeat, but here we are. So I wanted to take a brief break from Acts. If you've been uh, if you've been coming the last year or so, you know I've been working through the book of Acts. There's a reason that um, I like doing that. Primarily, I like choosing a book and working through it because it forces the, the preacher to talk about things that maybe they wouldn't normally choose to speak about. And so it's a way to submit the scriptures. Uh, in this case, I wanted to take a brief break from Acts and just talk about some things I've been thinking about over the summer, reading about, praying about. And uh, the passage that we're going to use today as we think through this is John 4. So if you can flip to John 4. The book of John is pretty amazing. Uh, this is a famous passage that many of you have probably heard. Uh, for text's sake, I have cut in half all the stuff they have to project, but I'm going to read a little beyond what's projected. Sorry. Uh, it's, it's just a really good passage. It's hard to stop it. Uh, but let's look at this. This is a, a simple story, but we will contextualize it as we're moving through. This is our Lord, our Savior, Jesus, and his interaction with the Samaritan woman. So let's look together. John 4. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty forever. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you're right in saying, I have no husband, for you've had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming 
when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And let me go on just a little bit longer. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it's good. Thank you that Jesus is good. I ask that in this place we would meet him. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, there's a film from the early 2000s. Those of you who know me, love, I love movies. I'm kind of a movie buff. There's a movie from the early 2000s called uh, Chocola, and uh, it's, it's well-made. It's engaging, entertaining. It also, though, it has a, while I don't love the answer it posits, it presents a really interesting problem and shows, I think, a really accurate portrait of bad Christianity, really. In the town, this is taking place in sometime in the early 1900s, there is a mayor played by Alfred Molina, and he he's uh, a very strict kind of man and likes things running in order, and the town is very tradition-bent. And as would have it in the town, a few uh, wandering, a wandering woman and her daughter wander in and they open up a chocolate shop right during Lent. Uh, as you can guess, this causes issues in the town and their problems. Uh, to prove his dominance, the mayor's dominance, and that his way is better, he takes on a little experiment with himself. There's this well-known drunkard and abusive man in town, and the mayor decides, I'm going to reform this guy. I'm going to show how we can change people. And he takes this guy under his wing and he uses all the tools available to him to encourage this man to right the ship. He makes him dress better and eat better and puts him through lessons on how to interact at the table more respectfully and all this. But of course, in the end, it all kind of falls apart and the guy ends up worse than when he originally started and the mayor feels lost, like what, what happened? He believes the only way to reform is through like strict discipline and willpower, and he has a Christianity of self-denial, and surely Jesus talks about denying ourselves, but he has no love. He cannot give what he has not received or accepted. And because of this, in the film, when the widow and the orphan or the foreigner Categories of people that God in the Old Testament actively reaches out to and creates laws around loving enter into his town, he can't give them love or repentance. He only responds with fear, distrust, and anger. His basic disposition towards the other is a type of hatred. The truth is even that his basic disposition towards himself frequently vacillates between really great pride and also deep loathing. It's interesting how often those two go hand in hand. 
great pride and great self-hatred. Well, I think the, the film sticks out to me because it's a picture of the worst kind of religion. And I think a lot of people are afraid that's what Christianity means, that becoming more convicted, that becoming more zealous about Christianity honestly makes you more hateful. That becoming a Christian means you're on a steady, steady march towards stern, unfeeling conviction. And by holding to any kind of moral code, you'll inevitably disagree and hate those who disagree with you. Maybe even some of us, uh, maybe even some of us Christians in our heart may fear this is true. Is the gospel worth it? Is it beautiful? Uh, or is that the inevitable conclusion? Well, today's story is the counter-narrative of Chocolat. Because in Chocolat, as the, as the outsider comes in, he only the mayor only responds with, hatred. But here we see how Jesus responds, and it's radically different, and it's a challenge for us. So there is so much you could break down in this passage. You could probably do a whole month just working through it. It's very rich, very deep. So I'm not going to hit it all, but I just want to look at two things. I want to look at this passage from the perspective of the disciples who kind of raised the big question, which is, okay, how do we follow you and end up like this? How do we follow you and end up loving and gracious and kind versus, you know, uh, angry and hateful? And then I want to look at the perspective of the woman at the well, which I think gives us the answer to that question. So let's start with the disciples. Well, the disciples are absent from most, most of the story, and that's because they're off getting food. Funny side note, it seems to me, reading in between the lines, that feeding Jesus was often difficult. Do you notice this? Jesus is like preaching. There are 5,000 people and the disciples come and they're like, hey, how are we eating? Uh, has anybody thought in advance about this? I wonder if there was always one disciple who's like, we didn't pack food, should have packed food. Uh, he's at Mary and Martha's house. Martha's wandering around trying to deal with food. He's like, you should sit down and listen. And uh, we're here again. And we're wandering around, and they're like, Jesus, you just have to eat sometime, you know? And so you can see that uh, getting food here, though, would be difficult. They haven't really planned ahead, I guess, because it would require them getting food from a Samaritan town. Now, at the time, why this is such a difficult thing is there's serious tension between the Samaritan people and the Jewish people. History's long between them. At the core, we could get into it, but the Samaritans and the Jewish people disagree about God and his role in history. The Samaritans agree with the books of Moses, so Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, those. Uh, the Jewish people took the whole Old Testament as their scriptures. The big one, though, is that they disagreed about where the temple should be. And the Samaritans actually built their own temple, rivaling the one in Jerusalem at one point, on the very mountain Jesus is now sitting. And at one point, that temple was burned to the ground in political action. Okay, so tension, very high. Uh, and it's highly likely that the Jewish person of that time would have second thoughts about entering into a town to buy food from a Samaritan person, both for their own safety and also because, eh, I don't know if I need to deal with them. So it's a morally risky thing, and the disciples' prejudice against the Samaritans, I would bet, is pretty deeply rooted. And maybe they're, they're actually really frustrated about this. Like, we forgot to bring food, and now we have to go into a Samaritan town to do this? This is always the kind of stuff we're getting into with Jesus. Have you noticed this? So you can see them going, all right, Jesus, we will get the food. 
why don't you stay outside town because you don't want to interact with them. Uh, we don't want you to, you know, you need to stay clean and pure, so why don't you stay outside the town, we'll go get it, we'll do this. And maybe they actually felt kind of good about themselves, like a little bit of the martyr mentality, you know, like holding your breath and going into town, like, yeah, I'll do this for Jesus. I'll go do dealings with the Samaritans for him. He's going to thank me so much when I come back with his food and didn't make him do that. And of course, they get back, and there's Jesus sitting at the well, earnestly, seriously, intentionally engaging with a Samaritan woman. And just, you know, their perspective totally flipped. And you can see them being stunned. I mean, it says this. They, they are tempted to say, like, what are you doing? Why are you even bothering to speak with her? And you can see the things running through their mind. Doesn't he know? It's going to look like he agrees with the Samaritans. What kind of political statement is this going to make? We're following after this guy and he's talking to her. Doesn't he know? She's, she's a woman by herself. He's going to look like he's an adulterer. And you know what? Jesus is really risking his reputation right here. He isn't broadcasting his role in the situation. He's not wearing a Mission to Samaritans t-shirt or Instagramming it, right? He's earnestly meeting this person on the same level. It's the most dangerous truth about good service or deeds that we're so good at doing them to be seen or to feel good about ourselves. We're always thinking about our perspective. There are a lot of sincere people who serve as soup kitchens to others, but there are also those who are really grateful for the food bar in between them and the people on the other side. We all struggle with this. Jesus was not one of those people. So when the woman finally leaves, and you can imagine the disciples, oh, you know, thank God that's over. You have in verse 31, the disciples finally say, let me read it for you. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. They're like, just here, we brought you food. And he said to them, but I have food to eat that you don't know about. Oh. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus says to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Now, for a long time, I thought this was a little bit of a jerk thing for Jesus to say, you know, like the disciples do all this work, bring the food, and he's like, my, but what if this is true? What if Jesus means it when he says, have you ever been working so hard that you lost track of time and couldn't eat? I, this doesn't happen to me hardly ever, but occasionally. I forget to eat because I'm so locked in on something. Uh, my wife has this, this is not my reaction, but when my wife gets really happy, she forgets to eat. I have the total opposite reaction. I don't understand that at all, but apparently it happens to some people. Uh, I think Jesus is so locked in on this woman, is so locked in on serving her and reaching out and loving her that he really has lost track of whether he's hungry or not. And when he's saying this, he's like, how can you think about food right now? Someone who has been disconnected and lost from God for so long has been united. And I think he's trying to lift their gaze. They're constantly like, here's the bread we got you. Here's the bread. And he's like, hey, something amazing just happened. Can we take a second and see what has happened? Jesus so locked in on serving this woman that all those other things, his reputation, his, reputation, his stature, the political ramifications of what he's doing, they just don't matter to him. Only she does. 
Now at the end of this chapter, Jesus implicitly tells the disciples to imitate him. He says the fields are ripe for harvest. He's like, there are people like this all over the place. Pay attention. Get to it. And then, of course, the Samaritan town that the disciples probably held their breath while they went in. Yeah, they stay there for several days while Jesus ministers to the whole town. So we could break it down to all the different parts. We could look at like, okay, so what does Jesus do here, here, here? How can we imitate him here, here, here? But I actually think what Jesus is asking the disciples to imitate is not a technique. He is asking them to imitate his heart. He is asking them to see what he sees. He's saying, you would have never stopped for her because you're looking at all the wrong things. But the harvest is ripe. Pay attention. Dallas Willard, who's a great author, once pointed out that when a kid wants to imitate a great athlete, they tend to do the wrong things, right? When you're a kid, you're like, man, I want to be Francisco Lindor. And so, uh, sorry, Yankees fans, but we shouldn't talk about the Yankees right now. <laughs> All right. Uh, so <laughs> if a kid wants to imitate Francisco Lindor, he goes out, he buys Francisco Lindor's jersey. Maybe he stands in the batter's box and waves the bat around like Francisco Lindor. But when he does those things, he's not actually going to play like Francisco Lindor, right? He's not going to get the jersey and start swinging the bat around a little bit before and suddenly he's an all-star shortstop. No, a real imitation of Francisco Lindor would look like becoming the kind of person who's obsessed with baseball and the craft and the swing and putting in the hours. It would require an actual imitation of the desires of Francisco Lindor. In the same way, I think as Christians... This is what Willard points out. We have a tendency to say, like, in a hypothetical, yeah, if a tough situation comes along, I think I'd, I'd do the right thing. I'd, I'd act like Christ. I hope I would. Uh, but we haven't truly sought to imitate the heart of Jesus. We haven't followed after it this way. So how do we do this? How can we become people like Jesus? How do we notice people who are not noticed? How do we not crush people we long to help? How do we love so deeply we forget to eat? Jesus is this unbelievably perfect mix of high conviction and high empathy. They feed each other, all wrapped up in love for the person in front of them. How do we get there? So that's the question. That's the question I think the, the disciples experience posits. And I want to say the answer comes from the woman. Let's look at the woman's perspective. If we think back to her life leading up to this moment, how long has she been getting water by herself? Midday. We know she's getting water midday when it's really hot by herself because on some level she's not accepted by her community. When was the last day she went with everybody else to get water? Was it after her first marriage or her third, all the... the frequency with which she has been married would have been something they would have looked down on. What point did she go, you know what, it'd be better for me to go alone than to endure all this? I don't think it'd be too much of a stretch to say she's probably someone who's given up a little bit. What does she hope for at this point in her life? How frequently has she made this trip? What 
gets her up in the morning. I don't know. But in the story of her life, the inevitable conclusion seems to be loneliness, a slow decline, and a kind of unmourned death. But if there's anything God loves doing, it's flipping the inevitable. That's the gospel. Jesus on the cross dies, and he's resurrected. It's kind of God's whole scene. is flipping the inevitable. Maybe some of you feel actually a little like the woman at the well. Uh, a brief word to you. God loves flipping the inevitable. You can trust and have hope in a God of love who is always reaching for you. We know from the Old Testament that God sees women like this one, and he sees her as well. Well, she's so hopeless about her situation that when she wanders down to the well and Jesus begins to speak with her, she thinks, this guy has no idea what he's doing. He's kind of an idiot because if he really knew the situation, he would not be speaking to me. So the minute he speaks, she right away, she's like, how is it that you, a Jewish person, would ask a drink for me, a, a Samaritan? This is like a shock reaction. Like, hey, you know you're not supposed to be doing this, right? The stakes, you know, political stakes are incredibly high. She's a Samaritan. But there's not just a political boundary. There's also the social boundary. She's not just a Samaritan. She's a Samaritan woman. Not too long after Christ, a law would be passed that declared Samaritan women permanently unclean, meaning they could never enter the temple. They could never be a part of the family of God. But Jesus just blasts through those two boundaries. He doesn't care. But there's a third boundary that she holds on to that's a little trickier. The woman is not just a Samaritan woman. She is a moral and literal outcast. And as the conversation goes on, you can almost feel it that she's like, this attention and care and seriousness with which I'm being taken is overwhelming. But if he actually knew who I was, he would not be having this conversation with me. So it can seem like Jesus is maybe being a little heartless when he says, go call your husband, and it forces her to kind of get closer to the truth. I actually think Jesus is trying to communicate something to her that I know. I know all this about you, and I'm still here speaking with you. So when he asks her, go call your husband, and she says, I have no husband. She's being a little, she's telling the truth and being a little dodgy. She doesn't want to get into the full story. Behind that simple answer, I have no husband, is just mounds of probably pain and shame. A lot of that story is probably the reason she's alone. She spent a lot of time thinking about this. And Jesus shows the whole deal. You're right. I know the whole story. I know who you are and I've still chosen to meet with you. This is a truth that's like almost too big to handle, and it recasts the entire conversation for the woman. Everything about it has been intentional. She thinks, he must not know who I am, or else he wouldn't be having this conversation with me. Jesus is saying, I know who you are. That is why I am having this conversation with you. Dealing with the Samaritan woman has required that Jesus deal with her deepest shames, and wounds, and he's safe with these things. He's good with these things. And you know what this woman does 
when Jesus tells her he's the Messiah, she leaves her water jar there. She forgets it and runs back to town. She immediately becomes like him. <laughs> the stakes are higher. Who cares about food right now? Can you imagine what's going on? And also notice, she runs into town and says, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. This thing that just a moment ago she was kind of hiding. She's so excited about what Christ means for her and has shown to her that she's freely talking about it. That story that she was just so sensitive about a minute ago, she's talking about freely because she's talking about not the story, but how Jesus, the Messiah, has interacted with that story. It has immediately changed the way she thinks about her story and her life. Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Now, do you think this woman was the most eloquent person in town? A natural preacher? Probably not. But what is shame? What is a lack of storytelling compared to the Savior of the world? She gets it on a level that the disciples do not. All right, so what's the answer that, that she gives us as we think about the disciples? How do we become like Jesus who has a heart for people, who notices people around him. How do we imitate this? Well, I think it starts with this. This sounds really simple, but I want to think about it for a second. We, in this story, are the woman and not Jesus. So hang with me. We are more like the woman than we are like Jesus, and that's important for a lot of reasons. And two, I want to highlight. The first thing is I think about that story that I led off with about the mayor, this kind of twisted version of Christianity. His goal was not to bring uh, his, his, his disciple to Christ. It was to bring it to himself. A real danger is to think, oh, I'm a good person. If people just kind of get in the room with me, then maybe things will change. But our goal is not to be good people and introduce people to us. Our goal is to say, and here is Jesus, to introduce people to Christ. It's a subtle difference, but a big one. And the second thing I would say, I think there are some of us who naturally think this way. We hear stories like this one. We see stories like this one. And we see stories like Jesus and Nicodemus and all this. And we say, yeah, yeah, Jesus came and forgave me. But just tell me what to do. You know, that's, that's kind of, you get that out of the way, so then you can go on and do good works and that kind of thing. Your soul maybe even naturally deflects the idea of Jesus sitting across from you and intentionally leaning in and loving you. Maybe you feel this way. You know that Jesus forgives you, but maybe you think about it in a more abstract kind of transactional way. Well, yeah, Jesus forgave me on the cross. I, I get it. But I think the way that we imitate Christ, the way that we imitate his heart, is by first letting Christ serve and love us. Is by actually fully to our core, accepting that Christ doesn't just come for the woman at the well, he also comes for you and me. If you have deep wounds, deep anger, deep shame over sin, we can even kind of pray it like, dear God, forgive me for that. My challenge to you is actually bring it before Jesus. 
Like, sit with it. And ask yourself, what does Jesus from this passage have to say to me about that? What does the Jesus from this passage have to say to me about that? That can lead you to a scary, vulnerable place, but with someone deeply trustworthy, Jesus. He eagerly desires to give you living water. He desires to forgive you, to comfort you, to hear your complaints. This can be really hard to do. This is why we have Christian community. This is actually why we confess sin to each other. Because when you confess sin, and you say, I know I confess this every two weeks it feels like, and I'm hopeless about this, and I want to give up, and I'm embarrassed that I'm confessing it again to you, and I just feel inclined to even just quit talking about it and keeping it to myself, the role of the Christian community is to be the other person and speak the words of Christ and say, like, I see you, I love you, I'm here with you, God fully accepts you. Every sin you've committed, Christ died on the cross for it, not begrudgingly, he joyously did it. It says, for the joy laid before him, he endured the cross. The woman in the well in this story did not have to, after Jesus had this interaction with her, she did not have to sit down and go, I need to make a four-part plan, figure out apologetics. Things have changed in her heart. She has experienced the love and acceptance of Christ on such a fundamental that, guess what? Living water bubbles up out of her. Some of us are more emotional than others, okay? So I'm not saying all of us have to have the same personality. All right? I get that. But what we see here is that when she has that actual interaction with Christ, that actual feeling of, she has emotionally and intellectually worked through the fact that the God of the universe, some, for some reason, came for her, sat across from her, said, I love you. This was not an accident. I chose to be here right now because I want to be with you. If we accept that and that sinks in, that changes everything about how we interact with others, about how we see others. There's no hierarchy there's no other group of people we can't reach out to. We don't think, how's this going to look if I talk to this kind of person or if I show mercy? We, living water. That's good news. I want to end by this. Um, Justin Ariel Bailey is an author. I heard him speak recently, and he said that his, his wife was talking to a friend of theirs, and their friend said, hey, I know you guys are Christians, and don't you feel like you're kind of trapping your kids by like raising them in Christianity in this way and bringing them up, go, forcing them to go to church and read the Bible and do all this. And she said, which is essentially voicing the, the question of, I'm afraid you're making your kids like the mayor from Chocolat, right? You're making them hard-hearted. And her answer was beautiful. She was like, for us, uh, Christianity has been the most gracious gift and the most liberating thing and the best thing we can do is give it to our kids. So my challenge for us is, if you hear that and you think, that is not my experience with Christianity, I don't feel that. I'm sorry. And I, I think Jesus wants you to know right now that the gospel is really good and that he came for you 
And I think you need to go sit somewhere and let that wash over you. Jesus came for you. It is the most liberating thing. That's what the disciples need to know. That's what the woman at the well knows. And that's what I pray we know as well. Let's pray together. Father, God, you are so good. And we are conceited and self-righteous and constantly justifying ourselves. If we're honest deep down, we are not the kind of people who deserve you. But you see all of it. And you came anyways. That's a lot for us to take in. Thank you that you did. Thank you that you called us here today and you came to meet with us here today as well. We love you, Father. Help us to feel the love you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen.